Well, I invite you to take that Bible and look over to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm super excited. I've taken a few extra weeks here on the glory of God because I deemed it necessary, as James said uh, even this morning, that we exist to glorify God. And we got to that wonderful statement in Ephesians chapter 3, to Him be glory, 321, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. We get to the end of his prayer, which is really a doxology. A doxology is a, is a word for praise, and he burst out in praise. And he burst out in praise for God's power. He burst out in praise here for the glory of God in the church. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and this is, I just, give me one more week, and then we're going to launch into what I think will be a life-changing chapter for us in Ephesians 4. But he says there, to God be the glory in the church, and I said that it's the only doxology in all of the scripture that identifies the church as the place God's glory is showcased. Most of the time, it just says, to God be the glory in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is obviously listed all over the scripture, listed in this very passage. But here, it's to him be the glory in the, in the church, in the local church, to him be the glory in this place. Beloved, I said weeks ago that the fundamental purpose of the church is one. It's singular. It's the glory of God. There's a lot of things that a church can do, should do, but its purpose, its very existence is the glory of God. To say it another way, the church is the theater where His glory is displayed. Certainly there's aspects that we reach out into our community, but it is the theater where His glory is put on display. God intends, this is from the scripture, to display himself in and through the church. Now, we said last week that the key feature of God's glory not only is his attributes, but the revealing of what the scripture says is his active presence with his people. In other words, he's intrinsically glorious who he is in his character, but often this glory in Scripture is visibly manifested, and this is our focus this morning. I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 32. I want to trace just a brief theology here with you on where this glory is located. You remember there, we began there last week in Exodus 32, of course, it's the horrific sin of the golden calf. And after they had made that calf, and after they had spun that calf, calf out with all the trinkets that were given to Aaron, it, we know that God was ready to destroy them. He was going to wipe out the nation in Exodus 33, but Moses interceded on behalf of that nation. Lord, don't do this. And uh, he relented of his desire to start over with Moses. But then the Lord said this in 33, very depressing almost. He said, I'm 
I'm going to send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land, verse 3, flowing with milk and honey. And then this phrase in 33.3, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are, the Lord said to Moses, you are of the nation of Israel, a stiff-necked people. In other words, the Lord said, I'm not going with you. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to wipe you off, if you will, but I'm not going with you. You say, what was the response of that? Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, disastrous indeed, they mourned, and no one put on us ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, and if for a single moment I should go among you, I, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments just for worship, the idea, that, you, that I may know what to do with you. So he's not going to go with them. And Moses has to, in Exodus 33, intercede again. That, that Lord, you, you've got to go. You've got to come with us. And God graciously, again, responds in 33. Watch the words. And he said, did God, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said, that's Moses to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And so there you have it in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and I am your people from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words... If you don't go, Moses said, I, I'm not going. And so now look down at verse 17. The Lord said there to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. In other words, I'm going to go with you. I will be alongside you. And then that gets to Moses' stunning request. Look at verse 18. Please, Lord, show me your what? Glory. In other words, Lord, I want to not only see you, I think what Moses is praying here in the context is, I want to be assured of your active presence with me. I, I want to know that you're going with us, and I want to see you in all your attributes, but I also want to be assured of your active presence. And do you remember the, the account the Lord graciously, again, verse 19 of 33, I will make my goodness pass before you. In other words, I'm going to let my beauty pass before you. I'm going to let my splendor pass before you, verse 19, and will proclaim the name of the Lord, and I will be gracious. And he's listing the attributes, isn't he? To whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he said in 22, verse 30, 33, 22, and while my glory passes by, you remember he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock. Moses says, I want to see your glory, but Moses says, you can't see my whole glory. 
uh, no man can see my glory, verse 20, and live. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to allow my glory, remember that, to pass by. And you say, did that happen? And the answer is yes. 34, verse 5. The Lord, watch the phrase, descended in the cloud. You say, well, what do you mean he descended in the cloud? Well, the Lord doesn't have flesh and bones, but he's going to let his beauty pass by. He's going to let his glory pass by. So he, at this point, is descending in the cloud. It was a physical, bright light. And it says in verse 5, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He quotes the very attributes of God. So his glory, beloved, you see that, that we last saw it last week, passed by, and as his glory passed by, verbally, vocally, out comes a recitation by Yahweh, Yahweh, God himself. And what is it? It's a description of his attributes. Now, what I want to do just for a moment, and I'm leading you somewhere, is I want to look back in some of the scriptures that trace both in Old and New Testament the glory of God's presence with his people. But I really want you to see the glory of God's presence in the local church. And I'm going to put those two together. Because God was very active now. He was very active then. He wanted people to know who he was. He wanted people to know his presence. He was promising to go with the nation of Israel. And he's going to make that promise in the New Testament. But first, we'll move quickly. God's glory in the garden. Look back at Genesis just for a moment. In Genesis, and this will become a little fuller as we go, this glory, this bright light that passed by, that he had to cover his face. But in Genesis 3, you remember um, there, man had sinned in Genesis 3. Sinned horrifically. And do you remember that phrase in 3.8? Look there. They heard, which is interesting. They're hearing something. And by the way, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is an account of Scripture. They heard the sound. You say, what is that? I can't, I don't quite know. But all I know is they sinned. They were immediately made aware of their sin. And now they hear, it says there, the sound of the Lord God walking. Now we know that God's not walking, right? He's not flesh and bones. So moving in the garden after the sin is some brilliant, infulgent light. And it's moving in the garden. In fact, in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, verse 8, hid themselves. Watch this. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In other words, as they heard this coming, heard him coming, they hid themselves, and it's, it's not really funny, it's so sad. That word presence there in the Hebrew speaks of face. So God is, if you will, moving, I believe, in this Shekinah light glory, 
presence with sound, and these two hide themselves from the very presence of the Lord. Now, what was going on there is that God always desired to dwell and reside with his people. And he comes here to Adam and Eve, and yet they sin, and then they were actually later put out of the garden altogether. But it doesn't use that word glory here, but most scholars think there it is. There's that glory. There's that goodness that passed by later. Here's that goodness in the garden after the fall, and they hid themselves. But secondly, would you note God's glory in the wilderness? Look over at Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, so we're going back now. Um, This is after they were miraculously, you know, delivered from Egypt with all the plagues. And remember, God said, I'm going to go with you. I have been with you. And here, God's presence was being revealed in what is called the, the Shekinah presence of the Lord. You say, what is that bright light? Well, it's, we have a word for it. It's called Shekinah. It's a visible manifestation of God's glory. In other words, his glory is intrinsic. His glory is his attributes, but he would reveal itself in this cloud-like light. And you say, well, what was it? It was revealing the active presence of God, and it literally meant to dwell and to reside with And so now he comes in his glory in the wilderness as he was leading the people out of Egypt. Look at chapter 13, verse 21. It said, the Lord was going before them. In other words, he was guiding them. I will be with you. In a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. And a pillar of fight, excuse me, a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night before the people. So God said in 33, I'm going to go with you, even after they had sinned. But earlier, the presence of God was with them. How was he with them? He was in this glory cloud. In other words, the glory cloud is the character, the active presence of God with his people. And in the daytime, it was a cloud that went up. And in the night, that cloud turned into a fire by night. In fact, look at chapter 14 in verses 19. It says there, 14, 19, the angel of God was going before the host of Israel. And it says there, Israel moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near all the other. It says all night. In other words, you remember it separated the nation of Israel from the enemies, those who were coming before them in terms of Egypt. But you see this glory cloud. You see this cloud, this pillar of fire. What is it? It is God with his people. It is God in his glory, God in his attributes, descending, if you will. It's his person and his character. Look over to Exodus chapter 16. You can't miss this. 
and you follow along, the implications for the local church are huge. They're still setting out from Egypt. They set out from Elam, and I'm in Exodus 16.1. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the month, and they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Is that sad? They're just, they're complaining. You knew that. They were complaining earlier. God miraculously performed miracle after miracle. He delivers them through the Red Sea, parts that sea. They walk through it. It closes back over the Egyptians and the chariots. They get a little further in their journey, and they start to complain. And so God promises that he's going to rain down manna on them. But look at 16 verse 7. He told the nation in the morning... You will see, and again, not a dream, not a vision. This is physical. See the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So he promised that they were going to see this glory. You say, did they see it? Yes, look at verse 10. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation and the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold... The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine there being some kind of complaint in this church? And you were to walk out the doors if we had some difficult meeting, and you saw in a distance a glory cloud moving in. And you knew the very presence of God was active. The very person of God was leading them. The very voice of God was given to Moses and they saw this glory cloud. It was for their provision. It was for their protection. It was for his presence. He was dwelling with them. He was there in their midst. Then I want to take you to a third. His glory is seen or witnessed or demonstrated in the giving of the law. In the giving of the law. Look over at Exodus chapter 19. This is very dramatic. God is with his people. He said in Exodus 19, 9, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear and that I may speak with you, that you may believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the, of the people. It says there, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready on the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You say, well, did that happen? Look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Just as he said, 1916, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought all the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, watch this, because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up and the smoke of the kiln and the whole mountain uh, trembled greatly. And, and it says there, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder and the Lord, amazing, came down on Mount 
Sinai. You say, what came down? The Lord came down. Well, what is it that came down? This Shekinah, effulgent, brilliant light manifesting in itself in a cloud and in a fire. What did it resemble? God was with his people. God was there in provision for them. God was there in protection over them. God was going before them. In fact, look over at Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. A very uh, important statement there. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 15. Moses, it says, went up onto the mountain. And the cloud, imagine if you're watching this down below. And the cloud covered the mountain. This is not just one of our clouds that you see. This is a glory cloud. And it says there in verse 16, descriptively, the glory of the Lord dwelt. In other words, it was his home. It was his place. It came down and dwelt. It resided on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. You say, what is that, Scott? He said he's going to go with them. Here's that glory cloud. What is it? It's, It's his presence, but it's put in this brilliant, effulgent light showing the people that he is with them. So God manifests this glory that Israel might worship God who dwells with his people. So that glory's in the garden, that glory's in the wilderness, that glory's at the giving of the law. Look again here, God's glory in the tabernacle. Go over to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. In other words, this glory is with Israel. What is it? It's the person of God. This is one of my favorite ones because they built a tabernacle while they were going through the wilderness And it says at the end, 40, verse 33, the last statement, so Moses finished the work. Would this be cool? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You say, what do you mean? This, again, this light, this smoke, if you will, this glory of God, it said, filled the tabernacle. How, how much so? Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then you know this, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud, verse 38, of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel through all their journeys. Isn't that cool? What is it? It's his presence with his people. He was moving with them. He was active with them. He was protecting them. He was guiding them. But you know what? His glory was also there in judgment. His glory was seen in judgment. Would you turn just to the right a little bit? I want you to see this in Numbers chapter 14. Here the journey continues in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And you would have thought that they would have learned all their lessons. 
But here's God's glory and judgment. Do you remember this? Numbers 14, 1 and 2. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword. And so you can see the context there. They're grumbling. They're complaining. And I don't think it was a light grumble and a light complaining. You say, why do you say that? Look in your Bible at Numbers, same chapter 14 in verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I mean, they were done with Moses and Aaron, the greatest leader the world's ever known, probably outside the Lord Jesus Christ. He's probably leading about two million people at this point, and it's not good enough for them. Even though all the miraculous things that happen, the manna that comes down out of heaven, the water that comes from the rock, they're complaining again, and they want to stone these two. You say, but what happened? Look back at 1410. But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Okay, I mean, can you just be there for a moment? Stone these guys. They're horrible leaders. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what it would have been like. And God begins to fill that temple. What is it? It's his presence. It's his active presence. Sometimes for provision. Sometimes for protection. But here, he's meeting them in judgment. The glory of the Lord appeared and filled that, that, that uh, tabernacle. Look over at Numbers 16. I think some of you remember this. Just even again, two chapters later, in 16, 1 and 2, Korah, the son of Is- Iskar, and son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Darthin, and a number of them. And they rose up, verse 2, before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well known. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. Say, why? They said this, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves over the assembly of the Lord? And of course, Moses being so humble when he heard it in 16.4, he fell on his face. He fell on his face. And then he said, call them all together. Call all the rebels together. And if you're pure from the nation of Israel, I want you to separate from these rebels. You say, well, what happened? Look, 1625, Moses rose, he went to Datham and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away from their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham and Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out and stood out at the door of the tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. 1628. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all the works that he, that, that as he, uh, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all other men die, or they are visited by the 
fate of all other mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord uh, creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them with all that belongs to them and they go down into Sheol, then you will know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under their feet split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that all of them belong, belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, into the earth, closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up too. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Wow. So what happened? Look down at verse 41. And the next day, the congregation of all Israel grumbled again against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, I don't know, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. So this is the, the case. This glory went with them. It was the very presence of God. It was in the garden. It was in the wilderness. It was at the giving of the law. It was at the tabernacle when they built it. And here, it's in judgment. May I show you another one? It was at the building and the conclusion of the temple. Okay? Go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Of course, David, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. David wanted to build that temple. And the Lord told him, no, you're a man of bloodshed. You remember that then Solomon built one of the wonders of the known world. He built that glorious temple. And then they brought the ark of God into the temple at the conclusion of it. And it says this in 2 Chronicles 5.14. Well, go back to 13. And it was on, it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison. This is what we should be doing, right? In praise, and we are doing, and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, and it begins to recite his works, for his steadfast love attribute endures forever. And the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a what? A cloud. God wanted to reside with his people. You can't totally have the God reside with you, but they built a place where he could reside. Look at verse 14. And that the priest could not minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It says, in essence, the same thing in Second Chronicles chapter 7. The glory of the Lord filled the house. What is it? It's a cloud. It's a visible symbol of the presence of God. You say, I wish the, did it keep going like this? Oh, no. I think it's one of the saddest things in the Bible. I, I wish I could just keep going and said it's even more glorious than what was there. But the testimony of the scripture is the exact opposite of anything good. In fact, if you find your Bible, look over to, the, look over to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. 
Because up until that time, God was giving his glory even to a disobedient people, but moving them and protecting them. And then by the time you get to Ezekiel, it's right before uh, Daniel and right after Lamentations, the story gets so sad, so sad. He, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, this is in Ezekiel chapter verse 5, he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes toward uh, the north. And I lifted him up toward the north, and behold, the north of the altar gate at the entrance was the image of jealousy. They begin to replace the worship of the living God with images of jealousy. It's so foul. If you want to read it, read it later today. In fact, look at verse 14 of chapter 8. Then he brought me into the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there are women weeping for Tammuz. It's basically the Baal worship inside the temple. It's just gross of Israel. So you say, well, what began to happen? Look at chapter 9 of Ezekiel. He cried in my ears with a loud voice, bring near the executioners of the city, each with destroying weapons in his hand. And behold, they were coming um, in every direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze, el- uh, it says altar. Now the glory, watch this, of Israel had gone from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. You say, what's happening here, Scott? It just crushes me. God's glory that promised to be with his people began to move. The house that they built for him. You can't contain God, we know that. But the house where he would dwell. The house where they, he would reside. The house out of which the law would come. The glory was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. But by the time you get here in 9.3, the glory of God is beginning to move. Look over at Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 3, where it says, Now the cherubim was standing, it says, on the south side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And then it says this in verse 4, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold to the house, and the house was filled with the cloud still, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of Christ. And so it's evident But later in chapter 10, look over at verse 18. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And in verse 19, the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth. The the glory of the Lord went out from the nation of Israel. Is that the saddest thing you've ever heard? Do you remember in 1 Samuel 4, once Eli died, one of his sons had a baby. Both those sons died. And remember the wife named that son Ichabod, which means what? The glory has departed. Is that the saddest thing? It's moving from the door. It's going to the threshold. It's going to the mountain. And then it's gone. You say, did it it come back? I, I guess I'd say not for a long time. Because what proceeds at that point is 400 silent years from the book of Malachi until the opening of the New Testament. 
that God had left that nation, not permanently, not fully, but they had sinned so greatly that his very presence, his very character, his manifestation, that visible symbol with the people was gone. You say, did it come back? And I would say, of course, with you with a smile, praise God, it did, came, it did come back. And it came back in who? In the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Do you remember the next phrase? And what? Dwelt. He tabernacled with us. Just as God was with them in the Old Testament, the word that was with God, that the word was God, and one, one, the word became flesh, and I love that statement, he dwelt with us, he pitched his tent with us, he tabernacled with us, but the best part of that statement in that, verse 14, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his, what, glory, the glory came back, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. What he said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father and the glory that had departed came back in the person of Christ for those 33 years. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said Jesus is the radiance of his, what? Glory, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. I don't like to say it often. It sounds a little bit slang, but he is God in a body. He is the image and the representation of the glory of God. In fact, Paul said, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. And of course, they went on, did they not, to kill Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, the Lord of glory. You say, in the future, is there glory? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, don't think, I think there's a coming glory that we've never seen. There's going to be a coming glory at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if the scripture comes up. Listen, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see, literally, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Great glory. Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, often veiled his glory, did he not? I mean, he took on humanity. Maybe the one time where he didn't, where he, he was still glorious, but he took on flesh. But there was one time at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, do you remember that? Where he basically peeled back his flesh and showed them his pre-incarnate glory, and they fell on their face, and that pre-incarnate glory was a bright, effulgent light, and they were blinded by it. But here at a second coming, he's going to come, every eye will see him, and he's coming with power and great glory. Let me just say this to you regarding heaven. Remember this, this in Revelation 21, the city has no need of the sun, no need of the moon to shine on it. Here's what it says. 
for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Do you realize that for all of heaven, we won't need the lights as we know them? Sun, moon, you know, maybe they'll come in some fashion or form, but all I know is it says there that the glory of God is going to illuminate the millennial kingdom as well as to the eternal state, and its lamp will be the lamb. He's just going to peel back his pre-incarnate glory, and the whole place will be lit up. Now, now listen, okay? You say, but Scott, okay, the Lord of glory, what did they do to him? They crucified him. They spit on him. They mocked him. They beat him. They thrust a crown of thorns into his head. They just mocked him. You're really the king of Israel. But we know that he died in our place. He died, he was buried. He rose again. He ascended into glory, and you might be left asking this. Do we see his glory today? Does in some way God reveal his glory today in this life? He went to glory. He ascended into glory. How do we see the character of God? How do we understand the heartbeat of God? Obviously, he's revealed himself in the scripture to us. But here, listen, we do see his glory today because it says, does Paul in Ephesians 3.21, think about this, to him be the glory in the, what? In the church. Listen, beloved. God Almighty has decided in this life, in this journey, not out of the Old Testament where he would descend in a cloud, He's putting his glory on display in the local church. Now, I want you to think about the implications for you on that, okay? In other words, the glory used to be in the garden. The glory was seen in the wilderness. The glory was seen in the giving of the law. It was at the tabernacle. It was seen in judgment. It was at the temple. It, if you will, uh, was in Christ in bodily form, It will come again in the future at the second coming, but right now, he's displaying his glory in the church. You say, well, what way? Well, Christ, from Ephesians, indwells the church. We are, you finish the statement, the body of what? Christ. And Christ continues his work in the world through the church. And he does that corporately, okay? Does that individually, but he does that corporately. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? It just means that you've been left on earth to reveal the character of God. You've been left on earth to give glory unto God. You've been left on earth to make his glories known. In other words, as God has went to glory in the person of Christ to heaven, he's deposited that glory in the local church. He dwells in us. He dwells in us corporately. He dwells in us individually. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give us the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So listen, you're to be a bright shining light of his glory. He's revealing himself today, he does it through the church corporately, he does it through the church individually, the church corporately, the church individually is the very presence of God in a lost world. Patty and I were doing a little shopping on Friday, I think it was, and we went to get some eat. We were running out of time, and uh, the waitress was there. And of course, you know, my wife walking in the spirit gets her name and begins to share with her as the bill is before us, you know. And I was looking down, and by the time I looked up, she was in tears because Patty had gently reminded her of the goodness of God in the hardship of some difficulties that she's had that has made her walk from the Lord. And I just wonder, you know, you'd say God's sovereign. Yeah, he's sovereign. But if you don't open your mouth, if I don't open my mouth, his glories aren't put on display. And somehow within the sovereignty of God, he's put his glory with us corporately, with us individually, that we might become a reflector of his glory to the people that we come into contact with. We're to be reflectors and mirrors of Christ in our world. So how do we do that? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians, we all with, and think about Moses, with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What does that mean? It just means as you ever look at the person of Christ, God through his spirit is going to transform you from one stage of glory into the next. It is not a single event. As you begin to stare into the life of Christ, his life becomes yours, but you've got to put yourself in the mirror. And I can't wait to get to Ephesians 4. I can't wait to tell you what you're to do. Because the point of this whole section here. God will be glorified when the church is unified, okay? He's glorified when the church is unified, and he's going to tell us exactly what that is in chapter 4. So listen, I, I'm going to go away this week. Dan Dumas will be in the pulpit next week on July 4th. But when I get back, we're going to lock, we're going to load, and we're going to just uh, explore Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. You say, Scott, what's the connection? He said to him, be the glory in the church. And then from 4, 1 through 16, he's going to tell you how you can do that. So if the crowd gets a little smaller next week, I'll know that you'll not want the implications to come. Listen, in a couple weeks, you come because I'll tell you, it's going to change us. It's already in the process of changing me. This is one of the greatest scriptures in all of the Bible, and we're going to dive into that. The last thing I'll say to you isn't this whole thought of his glory residing in the church, Paul in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. In other words, he's put us on this earth to help 
other people see him. But we've got to love him. We've got to study him. We've got to have him revealed to us in the word. And we've got to come to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I remember sometimes when I was a little boy, I'd get one of those things that are glow in the dark, you know. And uh, I didn't want the glow to go out. And so sometimes, you know, my dad said, no, no, Scott, if you take that that glow in the dark, uh, I, I think it was an incredible hope, is what it was. If you take that and go put it in the light, you'll get the glow back. So sure enough, I'd just stand there for about 10 minutes before bedtime, you know, and then the light would go off and Hulk would be green, like he'd be lit up like a, a green monster that he was, and then it would begin to fade at night. Listen, you need to get so close to the Lord Jesus Christ that the life of Christ begins to permeate you. And when we're individually filled with the Spirit and corporately filled with the Spirit, we'll understand his great power.